I take refuge in the Buddha, that which does not disappear. I take refuge in the Dharma, crystal clear in the eye of the storm. I take refuge in the Sangha and the infinite unseen ways living beings depend upon each other. Good morning, everyone. Residents, thank you for embarking on this journey together. And thank you, everyone online, for joining us and maintaining a life of practice where you are. My name is Kosho Janet Alt, and I'm here today to ask you, what's the point? Since time immemorial, we've been wheeling through the six realms. If everything changes and disappears, if there is no way to escape suffering and death, What's the point of doing anything? Unman said, look, this world is vast and wide. Why do you put on your robe at the sound of the bell? Look, you are going to die, and you don't know when. Why get out of bed? Look, this world is falling apart at the seams, and even if everyone miraculously learns how to work together, we still might not be able to stop it. Why try? Eco-Dharma champion David Loy says, quote, Bodhisattvas act without attachments to the results of what they do, but this is easily misinterpreted as a casual attitude, and we actually need to be extremely strategic. Marathon runners focus on the present moment. You are becoming one with the means. But suppose you're running a race with no endpoint, a task so difficult there's no final realization. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. If we really understand what this commitment involves, can we avoid feeling overwhelmed? But the fact that the vow cannot be fulfilled isn't the problem. It's the point of it. Since it can't be achieved, what the vow is really calling for is a reorientation in our lives, from our usual self-preoccupation to what's good for the well-being of everyone, based on the realization that my well-being is not separate from the well-being of everyone. So what becomes important is not the unattainable goal, but the direction of our efforts. Someone who has vowed to do the impossible is not going to be intimidated by challenges that feel hopeless. No matter the enormity of the challenge we face today, in a way, it's a small subset of what the bodhisattvas have vowed. We keep trying indefinitely." End quote. <clears throat> Everything matters and nothing matters are both views we can try on. So let's take a moment now to get really still and clear. Come into full awareness of the body, the field of tiny touches, the ambient symphony of world sounds. And then drop in the belief, ultimately nothing matters. How does it feel in the bottom of your stomach? There's nothing I can do to make a difference. Maybe it would actually be better if humans went extinct. Now let's try dropping in the belief, what I do matters. How does that feel in the bottom of your stomach? I don't know what I have the power to change, but I have to try. Life is worth protecting. Even if we lose everything, our efforts will not have been in vain. 
We're of course tapping a deeper level than rationale here into our very gut of guts. <clears throat> For me, the point of eating, of learning and showing up is precisely because everything changes. My body will rot in the ground. The earth will wither and fracture. The sun will burn itself out. But also greed will be composted into generosity. Ignorance will blow away like dust from our eyes. Anger will fizzle itself out. No storm can prevent the sun's return. Change is the one thing we can count on, so let's change it for the better, given the best available information we have at the time. Eco-philosopher Joanna Macy says, the great unraveling, get used to it. But there's also the great turning, and right now they're neck and neck. We don't know which will win out. And as Kenyo reminded us the other morning, perhaps great destruction and great creativity depend on each other deep loss, and the freedom to reinvent. I'm coming to see a difference between festering, unprocessed grief and true grief, and that the latter contains an element of creativity, a poignancy and poetry that Jogan described as, then the flowers start talking to you. We're wheeling through the six realms, but we aren't helpless. We experience everything as flow, and we cultivate agency. As the Buddhist Peace Fellowship states, above all, we engage the paradox of how to accept and love the world just as it is and fight like hell to change it. So given all of this, what is the meaning of our lives? Where do we find meaning? From a Theravadan perspective, by spending a great deal of time in meditation, practicing renunciation and strict ethical conduct to purify the mind from evil, human beings possess the ability to achieve enlightenment and free themselves from the cycle of birth and death. Summarized by Sung San Sunim, one of the early Korean Zen masters to settle in the United States and author of Compass of Zen, life is impermanent, therefore life is suffering, and the suffering world is entirely created by our own thinking, and here's how you can end suffering. To me, this means nirvana is the highest meaning of a human life from this perspective, that the best way to help beings is to contribute to a more awakened collective consciousness by not generating any new karma. Now, from a Mahayana perspective, humans can achieve enlightenment and become a bodhisattva, but then they choose to remain in the wheel of samsara lifetime after lifetime to be of service until every last being is free. In his introduction to Mother of the Buddha's Commentary on the Heart Sutra, Lex Hickson simply and confidently asserts that the meaning of life is compassion, the highest expression of realization a human being can achieve. Sung San Sunim says, emptiness means everything is always complete. Mind is a clear mirror, but you must make truth function correctly to help others. From moment to moment, my life is only for others. David Loy frames the Bodhisattva vow in a modern context. He says, the Buddha was not facing the ecological crisis. We can't look to the teachings to tell us what to do. 
but they can say a lot about how to do it. The six paramitas, generosity, ethical behavior, endurance, patience, some kind of mindfulness process, and of course, especially wisdom. But the traditional bodhisattva path is all about individuals helping other individuals. I think we're clearly in a situation where we need to understand the institutionalization of the problems we're facing today. He says, we have different and I think deeper understandings of how dukkha and the three poisons can be built into organizations. He describes institutionalized greed through corporate consumer capitalism, where progress means indefinite growth. Institutionalized anger through the prison industrial complex and the most militarized society in human history. Institutionalized ignorance in which the media, the nervous system of the globe, are private for-profit companies controlled by billionaires. And, he continues, perhaps the fundamental problem is the belief in a separate self, that we feel separate from the earth. And here the Buddhist teachings can help greatly. When we realize our non-duality with all people and this planet that takes care of us, we don't want to do anything else. It becomes both our passion and our joy to live this way. And I'd like to interject here that, of course, viewing the earth as a separate, insentient object that we have dominion over and from which we can extract resources with impunity is not the only nor the most enduring view humans have held. I would argue it's certainly been the most damaging, but in our collective ancestral consciousness are other ways, regenerative and sustainable ways that are alive and well in many communities today. And these technologies could be deployed at scale with the leadership of indigenous people and people of color to ensure a just transition to land restoration and resource equity. Back to David Loy. Ask yourself, given the way things are falling apart now, just as we've achieved a global civilization that seems to be self-destructing, that we can't in any way assume that the kind of life we've been able to live up to this point is going to be able to continue, Ask yourself in that context, what do you want the meaning of your life to be? What's the focus going to be given the chaos? From the Zen perspective, Sung San Sunim says, truth cannot be expressed through words, but points directly to experience. Simply the practice of meditation, just this moment. And in each moment, there is everything, infinite time and space. To me, that means because everything is just this moment, and this moment is everything, then the meaning is inherent in the isness. And a superpower of Zen is that we can train ourselves to be completely present and whole in the face of great adversity. After all, even the moment of death is just this. 10,000 things return to the one. Where does the one return? Is there a climate crisis? Of course, there are several ways to look at this. So let's start with the cosmic. We are the dirt and ash of this planet. We break down into food for the web of life. This planet is the stuff of stars. It breaks down into creative energy for the life of the universe. This seems to be the natural order of things. Elements coming together and coming apart that could never fall out of balance because, at least as far as I can tell, there is no universal imperative for things to be any certain way or even exist at all. 
Now, this foundation is only useful if it helps us in this moment, so let's bring it down to earth. We certainly have 10,000 problems requiring 10,000 creative solutions. And we return to Zazen, to a mind with no thought. Experience as one formless field of sensation, the truest experience possible. And then the one returns to the fray, to the 10,000 things, but with more space and clarity, grounded in the timeless, to respond skillfully and effectively with less attachment to a false sense of rugged individualism. Now let's make it even more intimate. As far as I can actually prove right now, all of existence is my mind. There's nothing out there, it's all happening right here. And right here, I do have power to choose how I respond. And from my experience, hatred, blame, shame, othering, despair, and railing against reality only serve to kill the soul and anesthetize me into inaction. Not to mention the fact that they aren't true. So how to take a stand against injustice wholly out of love without falling into dualistic opposition? To be able to do this work, I feel it's important to ground in an embodied knowing that we're not trying to fix something broken, broken people, or a broken planet. We've known all along that life and death walk hand in hand, and the universe can never fall out of itself. And at the same time, our practice, our process of awakening, dispelling of ignorance, and widening awareness give rise to an ethical imperative. As we know better, we do better. Since Shakyamuni Buddha's life, ethics have been paramount in the Buddhist teachings. And the fact of our situation is that the people who've contributed the least to global warming are being hit the hardest first, which is simply out of accord with the precepts. And of course, it's one world. No one gets out. What we've inherited is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And at the end of the day, we don't act because we did a thought experiment. We act because people are dying and it's the right thing to do. As climate justice activist Colette Pichon Battle said, this is the opportunity for the environmental movement to do what the movement for black lives did, which is to say, what's happening to the people and can we stand against that? I mean, why is there a climate movement focused on emissions when you can get to the same, if not a better, more healthy environment when you focus on what's happening to the people next to those emissions, the communities that are literally not breathing because the air is too bad and the water and soil are polluted. These are just humans that we have agreed as a society to devalue and invisibilize, and what we have to do is visibilize them, and that's what the Movement for Black Lives did. It visibilized George Floyd, whose death catalyzed a nation. Visibilizing these communities whose daily struggle to breathe and engage in a healthy life is what catalyzes this climate movement to reduce emissions. Not because we want to be part of a treaty, not because we want to be a leader in the solution, but because we ought to care about those people who are dying. End quote. Is it possible to decide to change our worldview? I choose to believe we can love. We can figure this out. We will awaken. 
Do I know this is true? Of course not, but it's how I choose to live my life. And Zazen has helped me do this more than anything by teaching me how to concentrate, slowly enabling me to start focusing my attention on what we can still do to save all that we can, which no matter what happens will never be too late to do. Because right now, on another very real level, our planetary systems are breaking down, like the systems in the human body before death. We're taught in Buddhism not to fear this ordinary process. How liberating that our practice expands our capacity to stare into the face of the climate emergency without fear, or at least less fear. We can hold unshakable acceptance of the truth of impermanence, which gives us the power to take bold action for change, since ultimately, what do we have to lose? Everything? It's always been that way. Since the day we were born, this life could be taken any second. That's just part of the deal. This moment is the only thing guaranteed, and we've never been able to take the next single one for granted. Joanna Macy says, are we serving as deathbed attendants to a dying world or as midwives to the next stage of human evolution? We simply don't know. So what is it going to be? With nothing to lose, what could hold us back from being the most courageous, the most innovative, the most warm-hearted version of ourselves that we can possibly be? I think it's important to keep the scary facts on the table, but we all know where focusing solely on them leads. So let's turn it around and focus on what do you love so much that you would put your body between it and harm's way in a heartbeat? What is worthy of your attention and nurturing care? What is left when every last thing goes away? Is it the only thing I've ever truly had, my awareness? And will that go away? I have another extended passage here from the great David Lloyd. He says, Our ecological situation does not look good. There's the very real possibility that anything we might do to address it might be in vain. There are scientists, maybe not in public, who are becoming pessimistic about tipping points we may have already passed, but we don't know. Not knowing can be experienced as a loss of motivation, but within the bodhisattva world, I think it's just the opposite. Our spiritual path isn't about having an experience where now we understand what's going on and what's possible. It's where we open up to to experience a sacred and mysterious world where actually we don't know. Bodhisattvas access this mystery not by grasping it, but by being being taken by it. And that's why we end up manifesting something greater than our own egos. For those of us on the path, this awesome mystery is not debilitating. It's empowering. It can liberate us from dogmatism and other fixed ideas. We do the best we can in response to what we know, although we never know for sure what's happening or what's possible. He goes on to talk about how he's not talking about optimism versus pessimism here. It's something deeper than that, that if what you do is motivated by hope, then it will always be shadowed by the possibility of despair. He continues, quote, 
Our ecological efforts are our gift to our mother, and a gift is something you give without expecting anything in return. We don't know if what we do is important, but it seems very important for us to do. Individual transformation and social transformation need each other, and total non-attachment to the result is setting the bar really high, may not be possible for any of us to do. But when we do get attached to results, despair, etc., our practice will help us release and be able to return to the fray. If contemporary Buddhists don't want to or can't do this, then really maybe Buddhism isn't what the world needs right now. But I think there's a lot within the Bodhisattva path that can help us respond to what I think is the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced. The greatest challenge to our practice, the greatest impetus for all of us to do everything we can to wake up in order to respond appropriately. End quote. And I'd like to close with a, um, another quote. Um, this was from um, Vice Chairman of the Yurok Tribe of the Klamath River in California, Frankie Myers, um, on a podcast I was listening to called How to Save a Planet. And he was asked, given everything you know through your oral history, through your understanding of climate science, through your understanding of society and the world, when it comes to climate change, Frankie, how screwed are we? After a long pause and a deep breath, he said, there's a story of a great starvation when there were hard times for Yurok people and there wasn't enough food to survive. There weren't enough acorns or salmon or deer and our elders gathered together and decided the only way for our tribe to move forward was for them to sacrifice themselves. And they did it. They buried themselves to allow future generations to survive, to allow our kids to move forward. The sacrifice of our elders is why we respect them now because they gave their lives during the great starvation. We will make it, no matter how bad off we are. I believe it, because we've seen it before. So we have a little time for some discussion, but first I'd just like to um, give a couple calls to action. So you're welcome to join us this Thursday in participating with the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon and Green Faith for a um, Sound the Alarm event. It's uh, March 11th at 11 a.m. to signify the 11th hour of the climate crisis or last possible minute to act before it's too late. And spiritual communities around the world will be ringing bells, blowing horns, and beating drums, and posting these videos on social media. We will then call our state legislators together to demand 100% clean energy for all. And you can find a link to participate in the event and look up your legislators' phone numbers in the chat box. And second, let's keep the conversation on the table. Climate scientist and Buddhist priestess Kriti Kenko recommends meeting in small groups of five to eight people to educate ourselves and each other and process the grief and fear together, holding each other in a space of unknown and strategize creative action. And then we can join larger groups for larger actions. So I'd now like to open up the floor to any questions or comments that might be on anyone's mind. Including people online are welcome to post a question as well in the 
chat box or comment. <clears throat> That's a great question. That's so essential. Um, I think the, there's a lot, I think. Um, I think the first thing for me is probably listen. Listen, what, are, what do you care about? What are you worried about? What are you struggling with? Um, what have you noticed about your life and how the world has changed in your lifetime? Um, I think second is probably recognize that it's ridiculous for the environmental movement to be politicized. Everyone loves the environment, <laughs> you know, everyone, you know, and, and I think that this question of turning it around to what do you love so much? What land do you love so much that you want to protect it? And, and have you seen any changes so far over your lifetime? Um, I'm definitely open to anyone else's ideas on this really important topic if anything's coming to mind that they'd like to share. Sure. <laughs> uh, I was curious to know what do you see as our responsibility in this lifetime in this generation and what do you think future young people what will be their duty going forward um, well first I'll just say I think young people have already far exceeded their duty in, in waking us up in the youth climate in the sunrise movement and the um, you know, Extinction Rebellion and, you know, really um, the Sunrise Movement was paramount in birthing the Green New Deal. Um, so, I think our generation's responsibility is to um, see that Climate justice and racial justice are one, um, absolutely hand in hand. Um, and this is never going to work without a just and equitable transition. Um, the thinking that created the problem cannot be the thinking that creates the solution. Um, so, you know, we have to exercise what political power we have um, to, you know, elect people, um, which, you know, this year we saw has an impact, um, for sure. And, you know, really, I do, I do think, I, I, I have a lot of um, heart connection and faith with Joanna Macy's idea about a great turning. Like, I think so far... Um, at least on a massive scale, maybe it hasn't really been framed as a spiritual crisis. 
Um, and, and what a powerful gift that we can offer. Um, just, you know, the teachings about non-separation. I mean, this fundamental shift in the way that one relates to one's own existence. Um, deploying those at a larger scale. Well, for me, it, it's, you know, I don't want to get too, it's, it's not always useful to get too abstract about these things um, when we're really talking about a very embodied lived experiment, experience. Um, but for me, it can be really helpful to shift my perspective to the infinite and, you know, the solar system, the galaxy. I've, I've recently been looking at Hubble deep space images to just get a little bit of perspective, this little frame with 10,000 individual galaxies in it. I mean, that's real. <laughs> that's <laughs> um, and so I, for me, it can just be, it can help me in this moment feel a little bit more spacious, feel a little bit more vast, to remember that there's, you know, there's not necessarily a um, prime directive at a universal scale. Um, you know, it's, and, and in, that, in that context, everything's a miracle. Everything is just a pure gift. Everything that we, that, that we do have that does exist. Um, and for me, that, that, that's only useful in that it helps me in this moment to, to stay engaged, to not, you know, hide and fall into despair. That was very inspiring to me. I, when I look at this question, there's fear around it, and I think a lot of that fear is, it's the question is, putting us into a place where we're looking at changing our lives and changing how we see the world and, and changing our actions. And I would much rather have a little protected bubble that I know will stay the same all the time. That How's seems, that going for you? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what my question is. Um, to me, that's how our practice helps us in this, is because our practice is all about opening up to that change and um, stepping outside of that bubble. And I wonder if you could speak to like how that aspect of practice helps us kind of break the ice a little bit as far as there isn't any solid ground that we can actually be standing on. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, what immediately comes to mind, and please tell me if I'm going off in a different direction, um, is just that I found that the, uh, through, through living here and, and, and zazen practice, um, I found that the more I try to get comfortable, I'm actually just training myself to be uncomfortable. Um, 
And so, you know, this, this seemingly simple practice of radical presence um, for me has really started to change my ideas about what I need to be okay from the second I have pain, I have to immediately move to, um, okay, how painful is a cold shower really? Or, you know, um, how excruciating is it to make myself wait five minutes before eating or, you know, (laughs) all these kinds of things. Um, And, and there's also the way that like, if we're practicing, you know, the, um, Roshi, will you remind me the Black Fire of Impermanence? What teacher? Hakuin's Black Fire of Impermanence. There was a big fire during Hakuin's time, and um, somebody came running to Hakuin and said, the whole city's on fire, the whole city's on fire. Hakuin said, oh, that's interesting. And then he said, you know, if I reflect on it, it's always on fire. It's just it's like black fire burning at night. Yes, thank you. So, so, you know, all really like this, this image of everything is constantly being consumed. It, and if we're, if we're practicing radical presence, then it's just change. Everything is just always change. And so I think, you know, really tuning into that helps us really see that, that literally nothing can, everything is slipping through our fingers, so to speak, all the time. And, and that, um, not one single thing can be can be clung to. I wonder if I'm getting off topic or no, I think that's what I was asking. Is, yeah. Did you want to add anything else to that? I can repeat it if you don't. Um, no, I think you, you really touched on it. It's it's just kind of breaking out of my habitual way of thinking that things are just like this, they're not going to change, and I don't want them to change. Um, and, I mean, for me, like doing some kind of environmental movement that we're talking about, what stops me is that first barrier of, oh, I actually have to do something right now. Mm. And I don't know what it's going to lead mm. to. And I don't know what that action is. Go through my normal routine. Sure. Like that first step of into the unknown. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, really, like, I've been saying, I've been saying this a lot lately, but just that, like, um, I, that's why I'm, I'm trying in my own mind to, like, ground these massive planetary cosmic forces, you know, scale them down to one planet, one country, one monastery, you know, and, um, yeah, and we, we do what we can with what we have from where we are. Um, and I think a big piece of it is, is um, just as Zazen can help us to sit in that squirming, restless, you know, itchy <laughs> um, experience, it's the same with this issue in our minds, right, of this, like, um, I've got to do something, but I don't know what, and um, it's that same feeling. So if we're able to like comfortably sit in that, um, just like the insights that arise through zazen, you know, we get little glimmers of what we'd need to do. Um, thank you. Joey has a question online.
Murray asks, what is the role of outdoor recreation in fighting for climate justice? And what is the link between outdoor recreation and spirituality? Hmm. Well, Yeah, so I, I, I'm reminded of this, this interview I, um, I quoted from Colette Pichon Battle, and she also talked about how, you know, a detriment of the current or up to this moment environmental movement, um, you know, has been that um, primarily led by these large um, green groups led by white people, um, there, that it's kind of maintained what we have today, where nature is part of this park that's out there um, that you go to on the weekend and um, you enjoy it because you enjoy kayaking on the river and not seeing it as um, where did you get your gas that powered your car and how was it made that took you to the river to get into your kayak? And, um, you know, as she was talking about what, community is sitting on the edge of that refinery and, um, and, and so forth. Um, and so, you know, she was really calling for a more just all-around inclusive view of um, being part of an ecosystem. Um, I, I think there's a lot more to say here that I um, feel I personally need to do more research about, and I really am gonna, um, I appreciate the question a lot, and we'll add this to my future action items list. Um, <clears throat> so thank you. In terms of the, <clears throat> yeah, and I'd also, um, love if anyone else wanted to share anything about that. Um, in terms of the spiritual side, I mean, this was something you said, Rai, um, just that like spending a lot of time in the forest, you know, um, and I'm sorry if I misquote you, it was about, um, you know, it wasn't about like a scientific approach of, or of knowledge of figuring things out, but just that you fell in love with the beings that you met there. Um, and I think that's just in all of us, you know, it's our chosen says all the time, it's our original home. And when you think about your most, um, wondrous moments as a, ch a child, you know, that first opened your eyes to the, the, the magical elements of existence, I wonder how many of those were, you know, involved with, um, so-called nature or the outdoors. <laughs> I hear words like urgency and crisis and sound the alarm 
And it's, it reminds me of the, that kind of like fear mentality that Dan said was talking about. And it just makes me think, as you said, like if the thinking mind that brought us to this um, mm. circumstance, it's not going to be the same route that we want to go forward with. Is there room for more listening or more, yeah, more listening or, or encouragement and motivation behind feeling um, instead of this yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I was actually um, listening to an interview with Gina McCarthy. Um, I can't remember her exact role in the Biden administration as part of the climate task force. Um, but yeah, she was saying basically exactly that, like um, springing to um, quick, reactive, panic-driven action is um, is not the way because there's there may be you know very um, creative unconventional solutions that we've not thought of that didn't have space <clears throat> to give life. Um, you know I I see both sides. Like I also really appreciated the interviews with Greta Thunberg where she said like I want you to act like the house is on fire right now because it is, <laughs> um, and was seeing a lot of stagnation in political leaders of doing nothing. Um, so, you know, I definitely appreciate a, um, let's be real here about, about what's going on. And, um, yeah, that's that like, um, desperate reactivity, um, I, I think will continue making us spin in circles. So hopefully, you know, we can find a balance in how we use language, um, I I'm not I don't I don't know the right answer, but I really appreciate you sharing that that perspective. I think it's really really important. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add about that? Okay. And I mean that's another gift that our practice here at the monastery can offer, right? Sit, sit and listen, sit and sit and wait, sit and stop doing and just be. You know, if we can really um, in incorporate that into part of our lives, that experience of what that that is like, um, uh, is so transformative to a new way of approaching uh, issues. <laughs> I think we have time for one more. So it seems like, at least uh, this country, but probably most countries, are adequate at coordinating at a large scale when uh, there's agreement that something is in fact urgent. Like when there is a war, people are actually quite good at this point. I I'm mostly speaking of the United States because that's what I'm most familiar with, obviously. Uh, but just being like, oh, okay, we're in a war now. Uh, we're like, have to have to implement all of these things very very quickly 
that affect everyone's lives and affect everyone's freedoms and so on. And people are actually just like fine, like good at making it happen and usually fine at going along with it. Uh, and that basically hasn't happened with climate change. Um, and uh, I, I often, there, there's a, uh, I perceive a quality like, um, like some, someone runs in a room and is like, the house is on fire. And then everyone else is kind of like, eh, um, I, what? And some people are like, I can um, okay, I guess I'll help or something. And, the, and, the, and then the person who's freaking out, like, I actually was very confused what to do with that much energy, given the kind of weird, half-assed response. Um, and I, that, that's how I perceive a lot of the uh, climate movement. Hmm. And I'm curious if you think it will be possible to cause anything to happen if most of the room is kind of like shrugging their shoulders? Um. <clears throat> I absolutely believe it will be possible. <clears throat> because that's how I choose to orient. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> you know, I think the pandemic showed us it's definitely possible to grind the wheels to a halt. Um, and with, with enough uh, motivation politically. Um, I am not so fond of war metaphors in terms of climate change because I... Um, yeah, I think the last thing we need right now is like a, like when I, when I hear someone say we should treat this as a wartime effort kind of thing, I know that's not what you were saying, um, but just made me think of like the last thing we need is like closing down borders and, and buckling down and hoarding resources and that kind of thing. Um, hmm. I think it's changing. I really do. I think awareness is spreading, um, you know, Statistically, and I'm sorry, my numbers aren't exact, but I just read this figure that it was something like 49% of um, white European Americans are concerned about climate change, and that number jumped to, I think it was like 56 or 7% for black Americans and jumped to like 70% for Latinx Americans. So, you know, it's a huge number of people, and it's just a matter of... Um, Communicating, <laughs> I, I, there, you know, there's there's this whole massive thing that we're trying to make manageable for our daily life right now, right? So, um, I guess for me, it's just how can I, in this moment, say yes, that's possible. What's the next step forward? You know, I I I, I don't know the answer to your question. I can't know, um, but my practice is just about the direction in which I'm going to orient my life moment on a moment by moment basis. And I believe that, yes, we will do it. That is possible. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining today. We will close with the four great bodhisattva vows. <clears throat> 